Open your Bibles, if you would, to the book of Colossians. This is our last week in that book as we finish out that, that sermon series. We'll be in chapter 4, which is on, if you don't have a Bible, you can grab one uh, under the seat in front of you. It looks like this. Uh, the blue Bibles, page 573 of those Bibles. Take it home with you. If you don't have a Bible, we'd love for you to take that as a gift and be able to read that on a regular basis, uh, really life-giving to you. So, full disclosure, Pastor Chuck had already done quite a bit of work on this sermon before he asked me to preach on Thursday night. So, I'll be using his outline and then added some things to it as well. But um, hopefully you can't tell what's what. But if you can, <laughs> if you can, all the good stuff came from me. And... <laughs> The worst came from I, I said the opposite in the first gathering, so this got a bigger laugh. So I don't know, don't know why that was. All right, so it's a great passage. God's word is always good. Uh, looking forward to sharing with you this morning. So our passage, we'll read it together in a bit, is I think what we sinfully often tend to look at as just a throwaway passage. Uh, we, we see a bunch of unpronounceable names, which hopefully I can pronounce, and we decide that it's worth skipping over. Or we think that there's nothing to really be learned from, from what looks simply to be personal greetings and shout-outs as, as Paul closes out his letter. But every word in the Bible is God-breathed, and every phrase is important. Every sentence is to be treasured and explored to understand more of the gospel, more of God, and to ultimately know and love God more and more. So what we'll see in this passage are examples of faithfulness to Christ— so that we might become more faithful as well. So speaking of faith, let's admit that sometimes pastors and Bible teachers make faith sound so ethereal, so otherworldly, and so intangible that we leave you with the impression that Christianity is interesting, but not really practical. Now, those kinds of sermons aren't really life-giving. They only leave people straining for what turns out to be a spiritual mirage. There's this promise that's given of, of something that's great out there in the distance, and all you need to do is just, just work really hard, do the spiritual disciplines, pull yourself up by your bootstraps, and you'll get there. But really what happens is you, you find yourself exhausted, and you find no refreshment at all. There's just more desert, and yet another mirage. Now, if you're a follower of Christ, yet your experience of Christianity feels abstract, like something impossible to get your arms around. Or if you've ever stood in this room and you've seen people singing loudly and you've heard them talk about God in ways that you would love to experience, but you, you just feel like you'll never really be able to experience that yourself. If you've privately resigned to the fact that maybe an authentic, joyful Christianity is attainable for everyone but you. Well, if that's the case, then let me apologize on, on behalf of all other preachers who have talked about God in ways that the Bible itself never does. It's because God is not a system. Orthodoxy and traditions are not God. Ideas about God aren't God. Rather, Christianity is life in Christ. That's what we've seen over and over in this book of Colossians. How many times in the book of Colossians have we seen the phrase, in Christ, either mentioned or alluded to in some way, dozens and dozens of times? So far from being interesting, but impractical, far from producing people who are so heavenly-minded that they're of no earthly good, Christianity positions people to see and feel 
and experience reality. So Colossians 4, 7 through 18 is our passage for this morning. These verses include uh, various uh, final greetings, basically Paul saying uh, goodbye to to this person or say hi to this person and that kind of thing. And as I said earlier, at first glance, it it may strike us as a, a rather boring and unusable list of names. Yet in actuality, this is exactly the type of passage that we need in order to see just how practical life in Christ really is. So this text is a terrific remedy to the misconception that faith is interesting but impractical. So as we read, we'll encounter two messengers, six companions, and one apostle. And each one of those groups of people gives insight into the immense practicality of faith in Jesus Christ. Each puts flesh on the theology that we've been talking about all through Colossians. So here's a practical ending to this book. They're models of faithfulness, demonstrating that faith in Jesus produces faithfulness in us as well. So let's read Colossians chapter 4, beginning in verse 7. We read Tychicus which, by the way, is not the the most bizarre name in this passage, so get used to bizarre names. Tychicus will tell you all about my activities. He is a beloved brother and faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. And with him, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you. They will tell you of everything that has taken place here. So under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Paul wrote Colossians while incarcerated. I think it's really easy for us to forget that as we read through Colossians, because the tone of the letter doesn't indicate that at all. It's very joyful and and very uh, not Paul-centered, but others-centered. Not what you would expect from somebody who's sitting in prison while he's reading this. So he's chained to a Roman soldier 24-7. And the apostle was stuck under what we would call house arrest. So visitors were permitted to come and go. So the apostle leveraged each opportunity for the gospel and for the cause of Christ. So he didn't sit around and sulk and focus on his experience of being in prison and being chained in chains. Rather, he understood that Jesus is far too big for that. He understood that his suffering was an opportunity for Jesus' victory to shine brighter and for the gospel to spread further. And guests understood that too, as guests were caught up in the redemptive story that God is still writing for us today. Now, two of those guests, as as we already read, were Tychicus and Onesimus. They were to serve as messengers. So Paul couldn't go visit the, the church at Colossae, but he could send Tychicus and Onesimus to them. So we know from the book of Acts in chapter 20 that Tychicus was a Gentile from Asia who by this point in time had spent a, a, a relatively significant amount of time with Paul. He's, he's mentioned, in fact, in, in a handful of Paul's other letters. So he's a constant, constantly on Paul's lips as he writes these other letters to other churches. So apparently on this trip, he visited Paul in prison and then he was sent by Paul to deliver the letter that we now call Colossians and then to read it aloud to the church and to share with that church how Paul was doing. So notice how he's described in verse 7. There's three things that Paul says about him. 
First, he descri he's described as a beloved brother. Now, that just simply means that Tychicus was a fellow Christian. He's a fellow believer. And when, when God saves people, he makes them family. So shared faith in Jesus runs deep. And Christ unites all Christians to himself and to each other. So it's no surprise then that Paul would call him a beloved brother. God first loved us so that we might also love each other. So I'm wondering if there are people here today who long for that. Now, perhaps you're not a believer in Christ, or perhaps you, you are a believer in Christ, but you just don't have a church home and you've been drifting. So to the believer without roots in a local church, I, I would say to, you, say to you that you're already part of the family, but you're just missing out. You're just not living it out. There's so much that God intends to enrich your life with and to benefit the local church with. So come join with us or with some other local church family. I'll say that you won't experience the fellowship that God has for you without the day-to-day -day living out of the gospel with fellow believers that you've committed to and have committed to you as well. And to the non-believer who's here today, or maybe you're watching online, I know that you either feel right now or you have at some point in your life that distance. There's a longing in you for a permanent family. God has created that need in us, for lo that longing in us, in all of us. And I would implore you to turn from your sin and turn to Christ. There's no greater family or belonging than what Jesus offers, what God offers through adoption into his family. And we'd love to be a part of that step with you. So I would encourage you, don't leave this room today without talking to somebody around you about how do you take that step towards Christ, to being adopted into his family. So beloved brother is the first phrase. The second phrase is faithful minister. Now, minister is not a formal title like what we would use today. Um, we, we don't, our church doesn't really use this terminology, but a lot of churches do Minister Chuck or Minister Todd, that kind of thing. That's not what Paul is saying here. Rather, Paul is commending Tychicus as a typical Christian, just a normal Christian, one who is faithful to serve in whatever the task is that God has set before him. So some people are given very public ministries, uh, like what I'm doing right now, preaching, um, very publicly as I preach the word of God, but most of us labor for the Lord in obscurity. And honestly, that's me as well. And that's uh, most of what I do is in relative obscurity, and I, I think maybe that's a good thing sometimes based on what I do. But what makes one a great minister is not how many, how many social media followers that you might have or how prominent your area of ministry is. Now, we're, we're called just simply to be faithful in whatever ministry that God gives us. Tychicus was known for consistency in the Lord. He had faith, and so he was considered faithful. So we've heard beloved brother, we've heard faithful minister, and then finally now we, we hear fellow servant. Now Paul is describing Tych Tychicus as being on equal footing with himself. Now think about that. Don't let that pass by. Think about what that means. Just like Jesus rescued Paul from a, sin, from a life of sinfulness and selfishness, Tychicus had experienced that same rescue. 
They were thus fellow servants. They were equals, both unable to rescue themselves and both in need of a savior. Both then, after being saved, seeking to make much of Christ and not make much of themselves. So although Paul was called to be an apostle and Tychicus wasn't called to be an apostle, even though their roles were different, they were fellow servants. They were equal in the family of faith. So do you view your fellow brothers and sisters in this room in that way? Or do you wrongly elevate others above yourself? Or wrongly downgrade others and then look down your nose at other people? We are all equals. We're all rescued from a life of sin and self. And we're all grateful to our Lord and Savior who has made us brothers and sisters, ministers and servants, no matter what the task is that God has given us to do. So along with Tychicus, Paul sent Onesimus as well. And Onesimus is described in verse 9 as, who is one of you? Now that probably doesn't mean anything to us, but that would have sent shockwaves through the church at Colossae. And the reason for that is that Onesimus was a runaway slave from Colossae. So his owner was a man named Philemon, and Philemon was a member of the church there to whom this letter was addressed. So somehow, in the providence of God, Onesimus fled Colossae. He ended up in Rome. He heard the gospel from Paul, and God saved him. Onesimus' primary identity then changed from being the runaway slave to one who is free in Jesus Christ. So Paul is boldly calling him faithful and a beloved brother. So according to the norms of that day, this would have been unthinkable. And as Tychicus was reading this letter to the church in Colossae, people would have done a double take hearing Onesimus described as one who is one of you on equal footing. That's because slaves had zero social standing. And yet, in the kingdom of God, social standing is irrelevant. So in no uncertain terms, Paul is asserting that Onesimus is to be regarded as an equal because that's exactly what he was. He was an equal in Christ. Now, if you want to learn more about that, then read the book of Philemon. There's more info on that. It's just a couple of pages to the right uh, of Colossians in your Bible. So read that later this afternoon or later this week. So friends, Christianity doesn't eradicate our, our situations in life. If you become a Christian as a freshman in high school, well, guess what? When you wake up the next morning, you'll still be a freshman in high school. Doesn't change that. But you'll also be a part of the kingdom of God and thereby a fellow Christian on equal footing in Christ with every other follower of Christ. And God will give you good works to do, just like Tychicus and Onesimus. He'll also send you as a messenger, if you will. So high school freshman or PhD, spiritually speaking, it makes no difference. You are a messenger of Christ to whomever you are around. So do you hear how immensely practical Christianity is? As those two men carried the letter of Colossians and as, as they read it to the church, as they shared with Christians how God continued to strengthen Paul and spread the gospel, the saints in Colossae were being given living examples through Tychicus and Onesimus of, 
of what Paul so powerfully argued earlier in that letter when he talked about Jesus transferring us from the domain of darkness and transferring us into the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So moving on from those two messengers, we now go into the next part of this passage talking about these six companions who sent greetings. So let's read starting in verse 10, Colossians 4, verse 10. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you. And Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instructions, if he comes to you, welcome him. And Jesus, who is called Justice. These are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God, and they have been a comfort to me. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and in Hierapolis. Luke, the beloved physician, greets you, as does Demas. So one, one fascinating thing about this list of people is that there are these six people. There are three Jews and there are three Gentiles. So Aristarchus and Mark and Justice were Jewish in ethnicity, and Epaphras and Demas and Luke were Gentiles. So no one ever struggles with ethnic divisions today, right? That's just an, an ancient thing that they struggled with, and, and we're far too enlightened for that, and we're, we're way beyond being sarcastic, of course. Of course we still struggle with that. It's not just back then, 2,000 years ago, that this was a struggle. But notice that 2,000 years ago, the answer to ethnic divisions is the gospel. Today, with our ethnic divisions, the answer to those things is the gospel. And 2,000 years from now, if Jesus does not come, there will still be ethnic divisions. There will still be sin in the world. But the only answer to those ethnic divisions will be the gospel. The gospel is what unites a people together and breaks through those barriers that we have. So earlier in the letter, Paul had written in chapter 1 that Jesus is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning of the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. And then in chapter 3 of Colossians, he wrote, Here, meaning in the kingdom, here in the kingdom of God, here in the new humanity under Jesus Christ, in whom all Christians are bound together, here there is not Greek or Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free. But Christ is all and in all. Now, all of that sounds beautiful, but does Jesus actually, does he actually really reconcile people? Does that really actually happen? Is there a power in the gospel sufficient to render all of the old barriers and distinctions that people weaponized and still weaponize today to harm one another? Are those truly irrelevant among God's people? Well, Paul's saying, here's proof. Here's your proof that, yes, the gospel does work. It does break down those ethnic divisions. I've got six people hanging out with me in a prison cell, and they're all sending you greetings, Gentile and Jew, sitting around the table of grace together. Now, that's ridiculously practical for us in our day and age, isn't it? 
The local church must aspire to live like that because that's who we are. And Christ is our life. So when there are fellow Christians that we don't naturally like because they're different than us or because they're difficult to deal with, then the doctrines of who Jesus is and what Jesus accomplished on our behalf are the answer to those differences. As Colossians 3 says, we put on love which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And we do that because Christ loved us. He loved us first. In our filthy, sinful, pre-Christ state, we were unworthy of being loved. And yet we were loved. We were and are loved by the one who gave everything for us in his life and death on the cross. Now regarding the three Jewish Christians, we, we know from the book of Acts that Aristarchus, who's mentioned again in verse 10, that we know from, from uh, other scriptures that he traveled extensively with Paul on a missionary journey. And he'd even been caught up with Paul in a riot that broke out against him in the city of Ephesus. So why would someone endure such hostility and then continue to be around Paul and then be arrested for that? Why the willingness to now be a prisoner with Paul? Well, it's because Christ changed Aristarchus's life. His life was now not his own. And Christ is worth anything and everything. It's better and safer to be in the will of God, to be seeking and following the will of God, even if it means danger and distress and imprisonment. It's safer to be there than it is to be going against the will of God. And Aristarchus knew that because Christ is our life. Now, the second Jew who's listed in verse 10 is thankfully easier to pronounce. His name is Mark. And somewhere between uh, 12 and 15 years prior to Paul writing this letter to the Colossians, so 12 to 15 years prior to this, while on one of Paul's missionary trips to strengthen churches and to plant churches, Mark was on that trip, and then he gave up on that trip, and he, he went home. And to Paul, that was desertion. And Paul felt abandoned by Mark and was apparently at least a little bit ticked off that Mark had left. And so that meant that Paul couldn't trust Mark on his mission team again. He was persona non grata to Paul. So when Paul and Barnabas later decided to travel again on another mission trip, Barnabas wanted to take Mark, but Paul refused. And so this, this, this disagreement was so sharp that these two giants of the faith, they, they couldn't resolve this. And so they went separate ways. Paul went on his missionary trip, and Barnabas went on another one. Barnabas took Mark because Paul wouldn't take him. You can read about that in Acts chapter 15. But now, a little over a decade later, Mark the deserter is hanging out with Paul in prison. Now, of what practical value is it to know that Christianity means, as it says in Colossians 2.13, that we who were dead in our trespasses, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. Well, do you see that even if Mark was sinful in leaving during that missionary trip, or even if Paul was sinful in not bringing Mark along on that next missionary, even if both of those, both of those things were true, both men were alive together in Christ. Both men were forgiven. 
So there was nothing that in God's power they couldn't resolve and reconcile. Now that's, that's proof and, and again, so practical for us. God is in the business of reconciling fallen sinners to himself and of reconciling those sinners who are now turned saints to each other as he makes one big family. So if you look at verse 11, Paul says that Aristarchus and then Justice, we, we really don't know anything about the man Justice. So Aristarchus and Justice and the former deserter Mark have been a comfort to me. So God is so powerful and the gospel is so big that Mark became a solace and a source of comfort and encouragement to Paul in his imprisonment. Now, what does that mean? It means a couple of things. First, it means that, that Paul must have felt vulnerable. Paul must have felt vulnerable. He needed encouragement. Now, what an immense source of help for us as we think about this, that the greatest missionary the world has ever seen, one of the, one of the keenest Christian minds we've ever known, the, one of the stalwarts of the faith, felt vulnerable and needed comfort, needed encouragement. So we all need that. Don't, don't be so proud as to keep all of your struggles to yourself. Go to your brothers and sisters in Christ because we need each other. If Paul needed it, then I can assure you that, that I need it and that you need it as well. We need each other to give that, that encouragement and that help. But second, church, as we are filled with the knowledge of God's will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, as Colossians 1 says, then we should move towards other believers even those that we've been disappointed in, even those that we have really uh, striking conflict with. Because Christianity can bring reconciliation between brothers and sisters in Christ. So I would encourage you, don't let this moment pass you by. Is there someone either in this church or in the larger uh, faith family that you have disagreement with, that you need to be reconciled with? I'd encourage you to, to think about that, pray about that, and then humbly and lovingly go to that person and try to have some sort of conversation that might lead to reconciliation. That might, might not be possible because of their end of things, but think about and pray about whether that's something that you need to do. I think if we seek to make much of Christ, the one who reconciled us to himself, then we can be reconciled with anybody in the family of faith. Now, the second half of the list in verses 12 through 14 contains three Gentiles. So Epaphras, uh, the Colossians, and, and we ourselves already know him, he's the one who started the church in Colossae. We talked about him very, very early on in the sermon series back in the summer. This is his hometown. And so he's visiting Paul. He's hanging out at Paul's cell. But out of sight for Epaphras doesn't mean out of mind. So look at verse 12 with me. Epaphras' God-given love for his church was so raw and so real that Paul was always finding himself laboring in prayer that they may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. So Epaphras was a man of prayer. And what can we learn from this person of faith as we seek to be more faithful ourselves in that area? And then there's Luke in verse 14. Luke was a medical doctor turned theologian and historian. He wrote the Gospel of Luke and the Acts of the Apostles. Uh, those are widely considered, even by secular historians, to be two of the most well-researched books ever written. The risen Jesus Christ 
turned Luke's life upside down. Just imagine a person with Luke's pedigree and Luke's intellect choosing to sit in house arrest with Paul. So why would he do that? Why would Luke choose to do that? Well, as Jesus said, it's more blessed to give than to receive. And that's what Christianity looks like. It looks like humility. Luke was displaying humility as he sought to comfort Paul and be with him during that time. And then finally, Demas is the third one who is mentioned as greeting the church as well. And unfortunately, we know from 2 Timothy chapter 4 that he later deserted Paul because he loved the world more. So we've seen two messengers as examples of faithfulness, and then six companions who are faithful to Paul at this time, and then now let's hear the exhortation that one apostle gives. So reading in verse 15, we read, Give my greetings, Paul says, Give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nympha and to the church in her house. And when this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans. And see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. And say to Archippus, see that you fulfill the ministry that you've received in the Lord. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. So the last section of this book is, is Paul giving instructions for the recipients of the letter. And then he, he stops dictating the letter and he picks up a pen and signs uh, his, own, his own name. So Paul is instructing the church at Colossae to send his love to two other churches in that region, to the church at uh, Laodicea and a, a house church in that area. And then he, he's instructed uh, that he's instructing that this letter be passed around. Now, those, those things seem very normal for us. These are things that we would expect Paul to do. But let's think about this. What does this reveal about Paul's heart? Well, I think it says a lot. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul lists out several of the physical dangers and calamities that he faced as an apostle. And if you know the Bible, you know that Paul got beat up early and often. Uh, he, was, he got beat up worse than Rocky Balboa, uh, worse than Scott Sterling, if you know who that is. And yet, after recalling those scars and that abuse that he received in 2 Corinthians 11, he went through the list and listed all the things, all the ways that he got beat up. And then he says, and apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. So Paul was daily concerned about all the churches that he had planted and visited and supported and strengthened. He deeply cared about those churches, even when he's in chains, even when he's chained to a Roman soldier. And what, what are these churches? Well, they're people. The people make up the church. So through Paul's final instructions to the church at Colossae, we see his incredible heart for God's people. He's in prison with great needs of his own. He, he's got a past full of damage, full of pain that was caused by people. And yet, he still loves and cares for people. Now, what can we learn from this? Well, friends, you may have wreckage in your past. You may have been harmed by others. And perhaps like Paul, you've been harmed by people who, who claim to know God. But whatever the case, let's apply Paul's example to our lives. And let's pray to God. God, help us to be a people who are burdened for the people around us, who care deeply for the spiritual well-being of our brothers and sisters, 
who desire to see godly growth and faithfulness, who desire to see the members of, of this church fulfill the ministry that each of us has received in the Lord. So what's, what's the point of this? What's, what's the point of this passage? Well, the point is that you would look around at examples of faithfulness to Christ as you become faithful too. So experiencing the amazing theology of Colossians happens as we look around and see evidence of the living Jesus Christ and the examples of Christ-likeness and faithfulness that we see all around us. We see that in messengers and companions and apostles who are mentioned in Scripture, in, in the faithfulness and loyalty and trustworthiness of Tychicus and Onesimus, in the forgiveness and reconciliation of Mark and Paul, in the prayerfulness of Epaphras, in the humility of Luke, in the love and care for people that, that Paul displayed. So great examples of faithfulness that should spur us on to faithful lives. But we see it in person as well, don't we? Think of the fellow servants in your life, those that you serve with on Sunday mornings. Think of the people that you serve with maybe in the preschool building on Sunday mornings or uh, in the sound booth or in the coffee bar or out on the patio greeting. Lots of ways that we serve. Think about the, the people that you pray with and hold accountable and live life with on a day-to-day -day basis in your gospel communities. Think about the deacons who serve behind the scenes, many in ways that we, we don't even see and we don't even recognize. Think about your pastors who preach and teach and disciple you in the Word. Do you see evidence of the living Jesus Christ in these examples of faithfulness? Well, rejoice in that. And then go and tell somebody that you see who's being a faithful servant. Tell somebody later today that you appreciate that and it's spurring you on to be more faithful as well. But let's be honest and admit that it's sometimes hard to rejoice when we see someone doing something that we aren't doing well. They're doing something well and we're struggling with that. Well, listen, perhaps some in this room need to, be, need to feel a bit convicted here. Now, granted, some, sometimes you need a time of rest. We'll see that in the book of Ecclesiastes, that there are times and seasons for everything, and sometimes there are times just to, to rest and receive comfort and be comforted in that way. But if you're able and you're not being faithful in serving and growing, that, that may mean that God is using this time to convict you. And we have a great church with lots of people who are serving, so there's probably not very many of you like that, but there may be one or two in this room who, who needs to be convicted by that and needs to be uh, going to God and seeing what is it that I need to do in order to be more faithful. So I would encourage you to let God convict you in that way and then talk to somebody else about that afterwards. But regardless, we should rejoice in the faithfulness of others. We ought to be rejoicing as we see our brothers and sisters in Christ, as we see people in Scripture, examples of faithfulness. But don't just think about that. Think of the churches and the, the ministries that we support and that we pray for each Sunday morning. Lots of churches here in the valley, uh, all over the world, that are faithful examples as they preach God's word, as they, as they lift up God and, and exalt him. Think about uh, our faithful servants at 20 Schemes, our mission partners, or the Krauses in Italy, or the Hoshiwaras in Thailand. Do you see evidences of the living Jesus Christ in these examples of faithfulness? Well, rejoice and then send them an email and encourage them. Send them a, a text or find them over social media and encourage them of 
what they're doing. And their example of faithfulness is encouraging you. And of course, we, we know that living out the Christian faith is messy and difficult. And each of these groups of people that I mentioned will fail in some way. But the faith is real. And our God will never fail. So where others are the example, Jesus is the true faithful brother and minister and servant and companion and messenger who will never fail us. And God is in the business of changing lives through the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the good news that Jesus came to save us from our sins through his perfect sinless life and through his resurrection and power over death. I hope we've seen through Colossians that theology leads to lives that are Christ-like. And nothing is more practical than everyday life-on-life Christ-likeness. So when Jesus is known rightly and obeyed consistently, then Christians and churches provide both examples of faithfulness and exhortations to do the same. So if you're a believer in Christ, you should celebrate this. Rejoice in the examples of faithfulness that are all around us, of those who are living in Christ, and then be encouraged to grow in faithfulness as well. Let's pray. Before we pray corporately, as your heads are bowed and eyes are closed, I think this is a great opportunity for you to just pray silently yourself. I'm sure there are things we've talked about that that God might be speaking to you about. Perhaps you need just a moment to consider what you've heard. If you're a non-believer, this is another opportunity that God is, is using to seek you and to ask you to turn your life to him. And if you're a believer, perhaps you're convicted about a need to grow in your faith or a need to be reconciled with others or a need to forgive somebody, a need to be more faithful in serving and growing, a need to be more consistent in your prayer life. This is an opportunity to approach God with those needs. So let's use that now. Father, we thank you for this uh, family of believers. We thank you for the, the examples of faithfulness that you've given us in this very church. Father, we rejoice in that. We thank you for the examples in Scripture and the way that you have, have given us your word that leads us more and more into Christ-likeness. We thank you for the reconciliation that we all, as believers in you, that we have in Christ, that, that Christ has provided a way for us to be reconciled with you, with a holy God. And we thank you for that forgiveness. God, we ask for reconciliation with our brothers and sisters, and we ask for opportunities to comfort 
those in our church family and those around us that need comforting. Help us to be a help and an encouragement to those around us that need uh, that at this moment right now. And Father, we pray for non-believers who, who might be here to turn to you, God, that you might save them, that they might experience all that we've been talking about today and, and through the book of Colossians and what you've revealed to us of what it means to be in Christ. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.